I am Sarah Jane Case, and this is Enneagram and Coffee. Hello, friends. Happy Wednesday. I hope the day is treating you well. Today, I am answering your questions that were texted into the podcast phone line. We're answering questions like, who are type 7s most compatible with? Am I a 7 or an 8? How do the different types heal from pain and grief? the Enneagram and PMS and more. But first, today's rosebud and thorn. The rose for today is that I'm working on my first Saturday. I am writing and recording this on a Saturday. I am not normally this far in advance. And so that also feels really nice. And I feel a little bit like I'm, you know, like at school in the summer. Do you remember that feeling of being at school when school's not happening. Like it's almost more fun to be there. That's how it feels a little bit today. Like the world has stopped and I'm still moving. Okay. The thorn for today is that my mind has been going like a million miles a minute lately. Like I cannot seem to focus on anything and my husband will be talking and I'll just kind of start thinking about things that I have to do and things that are on my mind and my eyes glaze over and it's just like every minute of every day. I in like all of my tactics that normally help me just like aren't working right now. Like meditation, you know, journaling, brain dumping. It doesn't seem to matter like how much I'm doing to care for myself. Like the brain, it it wants my attention and it will not shut up. (laughs) So um, my bud is that on Monday, so in the past for you, I have planned my first friend hangout. We're still keeping our circle really small. I'm just like not ready to be out into the world, you know, but it is, they do say it's safe to spend time with other friends who are fully vaccinated, especially outdoors. So I do feel comfortable doing that. I feel safe doing that. I, but I don't, I'm just not quite ready to expand that circle very far. Um, I have just like maybe three people that I'm planning to see. Now let's get into your questions. So question number one is what types are Enneagram 7s most compatible with in friendships and relationships? I've noticed that I'm drawn to nines in many types of my relationships and I was just wondering. And this is similar to another question I got, so I'm going to answer them together. It is what Enneagrams or types of people are female eight wing seven or just eight most compatible with? So to answer both of these questions, I just want to say like we aren't really compatible, like more compatible with certain numbers. We're compatible with people who are at similar levels of health to us, like they're doing similar work. And fun fact, um, Peter O'Hanrahan, one of my favorite teachers, he's in the Enneagram Summit. He's been in the Enneagram Summit. This will be his third year. Always blows my mind. And one of the things he talks about is how your subtype is actually sometimes more of an indicator of compatibility than your Enneagram type. So a seven who is a social seven 
may be more relationally compatible to like a social four or a social five than if you were to kind of try and make this guess for for sevens. And, and the reason for this is that it makes sense. Like subtypes have different needs for how we survive, right? Social types, they are focused on kind of where they are in the social hierarchy. They tend to run a little bit cool, meaning that they tend to be a little bit more standoffish than the other types. Self-preservation types, they're very like warm. They like creature comforts. Um, they tend to be very cozy people who love good food. We have our our sexual or our one-to-one types. They tend to be intense and fiery. They're seeking passion and intensity. They make really intense eye contact. And so we're more inclined to kind of naturally be drawn to certain people based off of our subtype, actually. So that's a fun fact. Now, when it comes to being drawn to type nines as a seven, there's a kind of a couple of reasons I think this could happen. First, honestly, we're all kind of drawn to nines because they mirror us. It's really their work is to learn to upset us a little bit. So the fact that we all kind of could be in relationship to an average or unhealthy nine and feel pretty seen. And so sometimes we're we're drawn to people who will listen to us and people who will interact with us non-judgmentally, which nines tend to do. And finally, it, it also makes sense that sevens would be drawn to nines specifically because you're both positive thinking types. Sevens don't like when people shoot down our ideas and nines are often non-judgmental listeners. So they tend to be open and expansive and they believe in the positive. They believe you can do it. They're not inclined to verbally at least shut down your ideas or to express kind of conflict in that way or negativity in that way, which would be very appealing to a seven. Our next question is, my official Enneagram gives me a tie for type seven and eight. How do I know which one I am? And does the other become my wing by default? So seven and eight are one of those sets of wings where I think they're pretty enmeshed. I see this a lot with seven and eight. The wings can be so intertwined that we don't know which ones are dominant. I also see this with four and five pretty often where they're so dominant that you can't really tell which one is you. And I think there's some room for two and three for that to be the case as well. But in my personal experience, I've mostly seen those with seven, eight, and four and five. So in that way, I would say you probably are either a seven wing eight or an eight wing seven just because that's pretty common. Now, seven and eights have a lot in common. Both value their autonomy and their independence. Both are assertive, can-do types. Um, Both are future-oriented and don't like to be controlled or told what to do. As a seven-wing eight myself, I had to ask myself a few questions to really solidify my type as well because there is so much of the eight that I related to. So I'm going to share with you kind of what I had to go through when I determined for sure that I was a seven, and hopefully it will help. So the first thing is that not always, but a lot of the time type eights, especially women, have felt as though they're too much or people call them mean or angry because they tend to be very blunt and direct. And in their life, they maybe have had to reconcile their personality with society, while sevens are generally less likely to have those particular struggles. 
we have our own, um, but we tend to assume everyone will like us and we use our charm to get away with things. So eights tend to take what they want with direct action and sevens may try to charm their way there. And on average, eights can be a bit like a bull in a china shop, but they were going to fiercely follow through with their commitments. Whereas sevens can more easily smooth things over with people, but they're quick to prioritize their own interests, even if it means flaking. Now, obviously, anytime we're talking about type in this kind of way, especially behavior, or we're talking about differences in type, I'm typically talking about average levels of health. So this very drastically by individual, of course, depending on your levels of growth, your health, your particular sets of trauma and experiences, your subtype. So just keep that in mind. Another thing is that in general, I've learned that eights are more relational than I am as a seven. Most of the eights that I know or have met are pretty protective, pretty loyal. Um, They tend to be really family oriented and committed to a few people. As a seven, my life has been a series of tiny commitments to a lot of people and like making lots and lots of friends, giving each of them 2% of my myself. And I've had to really learn to shrink my circle so that I can give more and commit more to people. So that's kind of been my struggle, whereas eights tend to be so loyal they can kind of overburden themselves. A lot of times eights have this pressure that they need to take care of their family, take care of their parents. Um, And as a seven, I don't personally hold that kind of sense of obligation toward almost anything or anyone. (laughs) And the big kicker for me is that I will lead. I'm often picked out as a leader. You know, in school, I was always like sent to these like leadership camps and things like that. And I feel capable of leading. But honestly, I would much rather let someone else handle the leadership because they have to deal with all the stressful stuff. So as long as no one tells me what to do, (laughs) I don't really have an inclination to be concerned with the leadership. I have opinions. I'm going to say those opinions. Sevens tend to think of leadership as being kind of equilateral, like we're equalizers. So meaning as an employee, I would kind of put myself on par with the boss and didn't really think about hierarchical structures. We tend to even that playing field, even if we're the boss or the employee, we kind of act the same. While eights, they don't like to be told what to do either, but they also find it irritating to watch someone be a bad leader. So if they're in a situation and and there's bad leadership or a lack of leadership, they feel this obligation to step in and be that leadership. I don't necessarily feel that as a seven. And, and a good example of this is in my first Enneagram training, we did an exercise where we did like a fake E. coli outbreak. We talked about like, let's pretend like the food we ate for lunch actually had E. coli in it. So now we have like an E. coli outbreak among the group. What's your response? My response was like borderline delusional. Like I was like, well, let's go get margaritas. Like, let's take a break from training. So someone else, they handle this chaos that's going to ensue and we'll go get margaritas. Like assuming that there's no chance we were going to get sick. Like I was like so positive minded about it that I was like, well, we're not getting sick and we might as well have fun while they deal with this crisis, whoever they are. Whereas one of the eights in the room was like, 
I'm responsible for this. It's my job to fix the situation. I feel like the host here, even though they weren't leading the training, they were just an attendee like me. They felt responsible for taking care of everyone and making sure everyone was okay. I was like not even aware that I was going to get sick. Like it didn't even cross my mind. So that's a kind of a major difference. Okay. Our next question, how does healing from pain and grief change between the Enneagrams or some tips for different Enneagrams when healing? I just went through a big season of healing and my two came out strong while coping. So it would be interesting to see how others heal and or deal have coping strategies. So I do have at this since this question came in, I have recorded a full episode on grief specifically. So definitely go check that one out. But in the meantime, I think for most of us, grief is so rejected by our society and our society is so built not with grief in mind and honestly not with humanity in mind, the fact that we're not just these like machines that can show up the same every day. So a lot of the work around grief is really just creating room for grief. But we have these different ways in which we limit that. So type ones, they might limit room for grief by trying to be appropriate or proper Twos may have a hard time allowing themselves to grieve because they're going to be focused on making other people feel happy and comfortable and earning their love, earning their place. So if they kind of take a break from their job, quote unquote, will will people still be there to love them? Threes, they have a hard time acknowledging their emotions and and integrating their emotions into their day-to-day life. Fours can kind of allow the grief to take over and to neglect some day-to-day tasks that have to be done. Fives may disconnect from how grief feels in their body, um, try to intellectualize their healing. Sixes may need to prioritize um, prioritize themselves for a while, which may be uncomfortable, may not feel like the right thing to do, but will definitely be helpful in the long term. Sevens, obviously, like our big thing is not wanting to be trapped in negative emotion. And it can feel like I I describe it in my book, like quicksand. Like if I put my foot in to this sad emotion, what if it's going to suck me under and I can't get out? And the reality is that the more we struggle, just like quicksand, the more we get sucked in. But if we just relax, it's a lot easier, right? Our eights, um, our eights can struggle with letting go of their responsibilities, feeling like they can't power up. You know, the the feeling of weakness is a real trigger for a lot of our eights. And so um, that's going to be a pretty tricky thing. And for nines, the tendency and the temptation is to numb the pain through distractions. Maybe that's TV, your phone, food, whatever it is for you. Um, And the work is really in letting the feelings come, letting the discomfort come and allowing it to be your teacher. All right. Our next question is about Enneagram eights in relationship. I would love to know your thoughts on working to disarm the fundamental power struggle that my social eight wing nine and husband and I sexual eight wing seven have. We've been together almost a decade, so we love each other so much, but somehow everything is a standoff. We're both eyes open to the issue and committed to rebuilding a new dynamic. Heck yeah. But we find ourselves at a complete loss of how the heck to do that. Makes sense. I get that. 
both of us just accidentally made picking out which book to read our toddler at bedtime bizarrely tense. And the moment we understand enough why we are having the standoff to call it out and move on, but still have those agitated brushes all the time. We both grew up with our eightness discouraged, so he got good at faking it, whereas I got good at sticking it to the man. I love that wing difference there, for sure. We find ourselves accidentally fighting for our right to feel dominant instead of nurturing. Okay, so first things first, I highly recommend the book Seven Principles of a Successful Marriage by John Gottman. It is a complete game changer, especially when you're at this point where you're like, we both want to work on this. We love each other. We're fighting for this, but we just like literally don't know how to do this. This is the book for you. Like you guys could read it together, implement some of the strategies. It's incredible. Um, And I'm going to say like, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert at this either. Like I'm a very passionate and stubborn person um, who will like go to my death arguing something, even if I know it or not. Like it's, it's, it's intense. I've gotten a lot better over the years, but (laughs) there have been some times. Um, However, a few things that could be helpful that we have taken from that book specifically, um, And then one thing that I think just maybe specific to eights. So the first thing specifically to eights is maybe it would be helpful to just delegate which person gets to control which things for a while. So maybe this week you decide who, what books you read um, for the kiddo at night. And then next week he decides like divide the areas up in which you want choice and let yourself just have complete control versus having to negotiate every single time you make a decision. Um, Kind of notice the areas in which you're brushing up against each other more frequently and then just divvy them up and be like, okay, this week you decide what we have for dinner and I decide what we read for bedtime books and then next week we swap, you know, whatever the areas are for you. Now, a practical thing that we do in our relationship, sometimes when we're doing it well, it's awesome when we forget we it's really nice when we remember because it's really good for our relationship we got from the book i recommended and it's to do daily and weekly check-ins so each day the goal of these check-ins is just see how each other are doing you're showing each other that you're on each other's team and you serve as each other's support and you're always taking one another's side in things you're not discussing issues in your relationship as much as you're discussing What happened that day? What are the things that are on your mind? How are you feeling? What are you stressed about? What are you sad about? What's making you happy? And so then you're just establishing this connection between like, hey, I'm seeing you and I'm on your team and we're good. Like we're safe. Even if today had some tension in it, like I got you. Then once a week having a longer form meeting. So you're, and then on this meeting, you're really waiting to discuss those week, those day-to-day issues until that meeting. So we do ours on Sunday. So we hold all of our issues until Sunday when we have the longer meeting. Now, sometimes issues that felt really important on Tuesday, I don't even remember that they ha- like they're, that they even happened on Sunday. And so that can prevent a lot of tension and, and arguing that could have happened if I had decided to argue about it on Tuesday when things were really heated and intense. Um, So 
that's really cool. And then other times there are things that you really do need to discuss and we discuss it. The goal of course is to have like nonviolent communication, be really present, be really effective, um, listen, pause, breathe, empathize. Sometimes we do that. And a lot of times we don't, sometimes we have it out for an hour, But we have pretty strict parameters that we try to follow around what it looks like, and that can be helpful. But the goal is to always come to a resolution before that meeting is over. If that meeting lasts four hours, that meeting lasts four hours because we're committed to communicating through every disagreement and making sure that at the end of it, we both feel seen and we both feel heard. But like I said, some weeks we don't even have things to discuss because. By the time Sunday comes around, the things that we were upset about on Tuesday really don't feel like issues anymore, but sometimes we do and we talk about it and it's not always easy, but it's worth it. And we try to be as kind as possible. And when we feel like our, um, and the book will tell you like exactly how to do this effectively. Um, but you know, when, when one of us feels heated, we're, we sh- we're supposed to take a break and that's always better for us taking a five minute break and coming back. Let me know if you try this. I, I'd love to know if it works for you and definitely grab that book. Okay, the next one. Are any Enneagram numbers more likely to show ADHD tendencies compared to others? So there are stereotypes both for ADHD and the Enneagram that would make type 7 sound like they are the most likely. However, there's just so much more to the type 7 structure than that. And honestly, much more to ADHD than just feeling scattered. ADHD is actually really consuming for people and therefore can impact you in a myriad of ways. Personally, I've met more type 4s with ADHD than type 7s, although I do know a few 7s as well. Now, I would say it's less correlated directly, like all people with ADHD are this type or you're more likely to have ADHD if you're this type. And more so how we manage or deal with ADHD could show us our type structure. A type 4 as a child with ADHD may feel flawed in some way and therefore different. A 7 may try to make light of it or look on the bright side of it and what it offers them. Or a type 9 may try to ignore it and pretend like it's not happening. So that's kind of how I would see it correlated typically. Okay, friends, our final question for today. I have a theory that we, people who have periods, become the worst version of ourselves during PMS, meaning the low side of the number we go to in health. I wonder what you think about that. I'm a five, so I think I become an unhealthy eight, just trying to help my husband out a bit. Um, I really find this interesting. I'm, you know, first of all, I... I know your intention with using the language, but I'm actually pretty slow to call it the worst version of ourselves and more so would like to think of it as the part of ourself that needs a little extra self-care, a little extra loving. Um, So it's interesting too that you're noticing the lower side of your health. And the way that I think about the lines is that we can use both the high and low end of either of those numbers. So if I go to my rest number, I can do that intentionally and infuse a little bit of self-care in, take care of myself better, or I can accidentally end up there, which is what we kind of typically would call complacency. Like this is what kind of being complacent and not growing can look like. 
And then when it comes to our stress number, the low side of that stress number is an indicator that we're stressed out or trying to live out of that place can be really stressful. And then the high level of that number is kind of how we can prevent some stress for ourselves. So um, we can kind of be more intentional and do it on purpose so that we don't end up in those lower levels. So that's kind of how I think about the lines just to, for anyone listening. Now, I really like this theory and I like this self-observation because here's the thing, like you're paying attention and you're noticing your patterns and that's the, that's what matters. That's what, um, that's the whole point to me. It's that we just are paying attention to ourselves. We're noticing our patterns and we're actively participating in how we show up in the world. So heck yeah. Um, you know, I think I've often thought about PMS in this way. This was honestly a life altering moment for me because I used to see PMS as like this thing that happened to me and also a failing in me. Like I was doing something wrong. I didn't have control over my feelings or, you know, I was having negative emotions and therefore I wasn't as happy as I'm supposed to be. And therefore I wasn't being a good little girl or a good person. Now I see PMS as information as to what I've been suppressing most of the month. Like my hormones come in and they're like, pay attention to your feelings. Here's the things that you've been feeling for a while. And um, if I listen and honor and tend to those things, well, there's so much more love there than when I bully myself through it. Now, um, I think, I think you might be onto something with this and I definitely, for me, I definitely see going to both the low end of my stress and rest number. Like I am desperate for rest and therefore like, I don't want to, I don't want even want to be seen. Like I go so into five that I'm like, I don't want my face on a camera. I don't want my husband to look at me. Like I want to be in, I want to be in a little cocoon. Like when they talk about like how they used to send women out to in caves to be alone, um, like that's an awful thing to do, but also like I kind of want to do it. Like I wish I could do it by choice and not by force. You know what I mean? But then I also am kind of low grade irritable. I um, am very particular and pretty judgmental. So all of those things kind of come up at one time. And that's kind of the low end of both of those lines for me. So I think that's an interesting thing to play with. And I would be interested in other people who have a menstrual cycle exploring this as well. Like if you guys pay attention to this, please DM me and let me know what you find because this is endlessly fascinating to me. Okay, friends, this was such a fun and like varied batch of questions. Thank you for sending those in. If you have Enneagram questions that you want answered, you can call or text them in to 828-338-9127. As always, it is such a joy to create this content for you. If you enjoyed today's episode and you have a second to go leave a rating and review on iTunes, it would mean the absolute world to me. And I will see you tomorrow for the next episode.